Good morning. Well, we've made it through the snow of this morning, the time change of this morning, and now we are here worshiping in this next service together. And what we are doing is turning in our Bibles now to Psalm 45. And in Psalm 45, what we have is the opportunity now to be able to explore still another example of a messianic psalm. By messianic, what we want to understand is this. In the Older Testament, the word for the one who is to come, of course, would be Messiah. In the Newer Testament, the word is Christ. Pull this together, and what you will find here then is that you have a psalm that is pointing in the direction of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our Lord. A messianic psalm penned by the sons of Korah. And what we want to do this morning is to examine this psalm and tie it together with the prior messianic psalms that are found throughout the book of Psalms. Psalm 2 talks about the Messiah being one who reigns. Psalm 16 talks about the one who was raised from the grave. Psalm 22 speaks of the one who died for our sins. Psalm 40 deals with God's messianic plan. And now here we find in Psalm 45, there is this extraordinary imagery that is about to unfold in front of your very eyes. This is a royal wedding. But it is a royal wedding that transcends any wedding that, that David experienced, any wedding that Solomon experienced, because in the very heart of Psalm 45, when you and I get to verses 6 and 7, lo and behold, what we're going to find is that this Messiah has two natures, both human and divine. Two natures in one person. And it is spoken of in the Older Testament. We're going to tie this together because what we find here is a royal wedding unfolding in front of your eyes and my eyes. And then we're going to connect the dots and pull it all the way to the book of Revelation, the very end. We're in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. It talks about a messianic wedding. And the bridegroom and the bride and how all this fits in accordance with God's sovereign purposes. Hope you're interested. Make your way now to Psalm 45. And as you're making your way now to Psalm 45, we're going to notice that in the superscription this morning, this is to the choir master. It's according to the lilies. So evidently this, this writer was most likely looking out over the fields, pondering what was there. The attractive terrain. It's a maskil, which means that this is a teaching song. It's to instruct us with regard to something of high significance. And then it's of the sons of Korah. It is a love song. I'm going to read from verse 1 and down to verse 9, and this will give us a running start on what we're covering this morning. Because here now the psalmist writes for you and for me, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen 
of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you, mark this, forever. Good your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand, right hand, teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Think ultimately of that final day spoken of in Revelation. Now, what I want you to spot with me this morning is the way in which verses 6 and 7 tie in together to this Messiah who is both human and divine. Because in verse 6, now the psalmist is writing directly to this Messiah and says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, once again, as he reemphasizes, this time he talks about the one who sent Messiah into this world. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed, literally from the Hebrew, has messiahed you. Because the word anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. So now this one who is Messiah has been described as God, yet at the same time has been sent by God and has been Messiahed by God. Are you following me at this point? All of this is emerging now out of verse 6. And again, verse 7, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So now, that will give us a running start. As what we're going to try to understand is this imagery that's unfolding in front of our very eyes this morning. This royal wedding and how it relates to Jesus Christ. And how Christ relates to you and me. As we look to our Lord now in prayer. Thanking you, Father, for who you are. Thanking you for how you work. Thanking you for sending Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. I want to thank you, Father, this morning for each and every one in these services. I've overcome a lot to get here, to be here, to worship you. I pray for those that are watching online at the moment. 
of those that will be watching in the hours to come, days to come, weeks to come. Use this messianic psalm now to speak to our hearts about what our relationship to you through Jesus Christ entails, what it's all about. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again now to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ponder the image that appears on the screen. This is a Jewish wedding. It's a fascinating event. My word, the extended family throws themselves into this because it's really a seven-day celebration. Now, when it comes time for the bridegroom and the bride to make their appearance, the bridegroom comes first. He and his parents, one to the left, one to the right, accompany him down the aisle and position him under what you and I see as the huppah. The huppah carries with the idea that this is a canopy. It is something that encloses. There are a north, south, east, west element to it, you see. Four corners. Describing the four corners of the globe by which all of the Jewish community would someday come together under the reign of Messiah as they anticipate their return to their homeland. Now, out of all this, then, you begin to ponder how this bridegroom is awaiting the bride. She, in turn, now is escorted down the aisle by her parents. Now, both sets of parents also are positioned under the huppah and the huppah is such now where the bridegroom and the bride begin to exchange their vows. There are a number of elements involved in the ceremony, whether it's orthodox, conservative, or reformed in its orientation of Judaism. Messianic Jews pick up on all of this. The ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And what you and I find here is they have positioned themselves under the huppah. They are in essence making a sense, giving a sense that we are claiming the promises that God has given to his people. There's the breaking of the glass eventually. Prior to that, there have been seven, seven blessings uttered by various members of the family. Perhaps a grandfather, uncles, and so forth. But then once the vows are exchanged, then the bridegroom and the bride take turns in breaking the glass, a glass that's been positioned in the huppah, to identify with the fact that this signifies that just as Jerusalem's temple had been destroyed, someday... This will all be put back together again. And the north, south, east, and west above them signify that. But I want you to see what is right above the couple. 
It's the Star of David. And David was the one, you see, that had been given an extraordinary promise by God regarding how he himself and his successors will be part of what we call the Messianic plan, leading to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this messianic figure has to live. Now what you're going to find in this entire strategy that unfolds generation by generation is how the evil one is going to attempt to thwart the foreverness of this promise from taking place. We're going to unpack this now and look carefully at the imagery and see how the concept of the bridegroom and the bride relate to Jesus Christ, you, and me. Let's dig in. What I want to start with in verses 1 down to verse 9 is the first of two what I'm going to call this morning representations. Out of verses 1 through 9, as you and I consider the messianic wedding imagery here in these verses, I want to begin here by noting with you that the bridegroom in these verses, the bridegroom represents the Messiah, the anointed one. Your Older Testament, Messiah. Newer Testament, Christ. Same idea. You begin in verse 1. My heart, my heart overflows, this son of Korah writes, with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Very often this psalm is recited in Jewish weddings. It is a royal messianic psalm that carries with it all kinds of messianic implications. But now I want you to capture the joy here. There is an excitement here. There's an anticipation here. So now the psalmist has picked up his pen. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And now... And now what he does at this point is that he focuses his attention upon the bridegroom. What I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 is the dignity of the messianic figure here. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, humanity. Now, when you look at some of the descriptions of David in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, what you will find is that there are similar statements made about him as well, about his physical appearance. But there is someone even greater than David here, someone greater than David's successor Solomon here, but you've got to keep reading. Notice the dignity of this man. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, 
grace is poured upon your lips. There is something extraordinary about a leader who has tremendous capacity to communicate with his words. Stirs the hearts. Motivates the peoples. The leader of the Ukraine is Jewish. He had longed when he was in his teens to go to Israel to study Torah. When given the opportunity to be able to leave, to be evacuated from the Ukraine as the Russians were coming forward, what was his response? The fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. The New York Times picked up on this and wrote, Mr. Zelensky's response to reported American offer to evacuate him, quote, I need ammunition, not a ride, will most likely go down in history whether he survives this onslaught or not. We're stirred when, when one finds that there is grace poured upon the lips. In a secluded setting, Mr. Zelensky making reference to Winston Churchill's famous speeches from 1940 while addressing the Parliament of Great Britain, said that he wanted to, quote, remind you of the words that Britain has heard already, which become current again now. He said, we will not surrender. We will not lose. We will go to the end. We will fight at sea. We will fight in the air. We will protect our land. We will fight everywhere. And we will not surrender. And Mr. Zelensky, an unknown months prior, is a man whose name now is known throughout the world, demonstrating courage, articulating conviction, staring enemy in the eyes, and using the media prolifically in a way in which he can communicate the essentials of what needed to be said. Are you pondering? Why has God allowed for a Jew to be the leader of the Ukraine for such a time as this? 
And why was Chen Yobo positioned that power plant upon the grave site of over 40,000 Jews massacred during World War II? What does all of this mean? Meanwhile, meanwhile, you're pulling this together and you're thinking how something that is communicated poetically is tied to something of essence prophetically. I want you to see how verses one and two give reference in essence to the dignity of the Messiah and this messianic line. And now, verses 3, 4, and 5 speak of the majesty of this Messiah, of the messianic line. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Now, David obviously was someone skilled in battle. Why, he was sung about, and the people of Gath heard of this, where Goliath had previously lived. But when you are reading this psalm, you realize someone greater than David is here, of the line of David, yet greater than David. Good your sword on your thigh, almighty one. When you have opportunity, take your concordance and trace the usage of how the scriptures speak of the thigh of the hero, the messianic one, all the way into the book of Revelation and see how it relates to that final battle. What's on his thigh? He's the mighty one in your splendor and majesty. And then to reemphasize not only the dignity of the Messiah in 1 and 2, but the majesty of the Messiah in 3 through 5. He then repeats himself when he says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously. Now tie this together with Revelation chapter 19 where the Messiah goes into that final battle and he rides in and rides out victoriously. Ponder the usage grammatically of the thigh. In your majesty ride out victoriously. And here in verse 4, notice the triad. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. For your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And all battles that the Jews have experienced through the years, including the challenges of the Holocaust of World War II, are precursors 
for what is eventually described in Revelation chapter 19, when that messianic figure you and I know as Jesus Christ enters into that final battle. My father's side of the family is Danish. We are the people of Hugo, which, if you've heard that word on occasion, means cozy. But there was nothing cozy about World War II when Denmark was under siege. And in Copenhagen, King Christian caught sight of something that made him stop suddenly because flying over a public building was a Nazi swastika which was an open violation of an agreement between Hitler and Denmark. Take it down, said the king, demanding the German officers standing nearby get involved in action. One shook his head no. Orders from Berlin, snapped the officer. The flag must be removed before 12 o'clock. Otherwise, I will send a Danish soldier to do it, the king declared. The officer said the soldier will be shot. To which the king responded, I am that soldier. And the swastika was taken down. There is something heroic about this messianic figure. When threatened, as are the entirety of the Jewish people, by one after another situation whereby the evil one is trying to hinder the foreverness of God's messianic plan from taking place and unfolding. You see the dignity of Messiah in 1 and 2. You see the majesty of the Messiah in verses 3 and 5. But when you move forward into verses 6 and 7, you combine both the deity and the humanity of the Messiah. Watch what unfolds. In verse 6, it's as if now in the son of Korah, you can almost see him doing this in bold print. Pondering that promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 that this will be a forever kingdom now focuses his attention upon this one we know as Messiah, Jesus Christ, and declares his deity. Your throne, O God. Did you see that? He is calling this line, one from the line of David, God. 
Now you tie that then to the gospel account where Mary of the line of David brings Messiah into this world. And we see the divinity of Jesus Christ wrapped up in this virgin birth described there. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Nobody called David God. Nobody called Solomon God. What you now see here poetically is what is being described prophetically. This transcends all prior kings. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Okay. We spotted the divinity of verse 6. But there are two natures in one person here. What about the humanity of this Messiah? Look at verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, or literally, messiahed you. In other words, now, what we are being told is that this one has two natures, human and divine. And his humanity was such, that's described here, that it was his God, God the Father, who sent this one and has anointed this one, messiahed this one, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you take a deep breath when you think about the significance of what this means and how this relates to Jesus Christ. Two natures, one person. Stories told of Daniel Webster when he was in the prime of his, of his manhood and he was eating a place that I've eaten at in Boston. And during dinner, there was a conversation that turned to the subject of Christianity. And Mr. Webster stated his belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ and his dependence upon Christ's finished work on the cross. And there in that restaurant, one said to him, Mr. Webster, how can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? And Mr. Webster responded, Sir, I cannot comprehend it. But if I could comprehend it, he would be no greater than myself. I need one greater than myself. I need the God-man, Jesus Christ, you see. So now you've spotted two natures in this one person. You've spotted in that first Masonic Psalm that we covered, Psalm 2, he reigns. Psalm 16, he'd be raised. Psalm 22, he dies, thus then raised. You get to Psalm 40, he executes the plan. And here now in this particular psalm, 
we are given the imagery. And so with joy and gladness, now he's penning these thoughts. You're up to verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. So there's this international sense of what is happening here. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. You play chess? If so, you're familiar with the word checkmate. When you reach a point when towards the end of the game, your opponent's king is in jeopardy. What's interesting is that when in chess, the king is checkmated, it comes from the Persian word shahmat which means the king is dead. Now what I want to be able to say is that in the story of Adam and Eve, Eve gives birth to a child. We know the story of Cain and Abel, next generation. The evil one knows the messianic plan, the royal plan, he attempts to checkmate the line. God overcomes this and raises up one named Seth. When David is being threatened, just like prior in the days of the Israelites in Egypt, where the Jews were being threatened and baby boys were being killed, in the case of David, where he himself was being threatened by Saul and then later Absalom, God refuses to allow his messianic royal line to be checkmated. You get into the Newer Testament when Herod attempts to have the baby boys, like Pharaoh of old, put to death. He wants to checkmate the royal line. But God in his sovereign purposes keeps this from happening. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross with the inscription, King of the Jews, over his head. Three days later, God raises him from the grave. all in keeping with that promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 that your kingdom is forever. This gives new meaning to our understanding of checkmate. So now, out of verses 1 through 9, what have you discovered so far? What we have seen is that the bridegroom here represents represents God's Messiah. But in verses 10 onward, the bride represents God's people, all who have put faith and trust in the Messiah. From the earliest stages of the Old Testament on to this very present day. So now, here he begins to talk to the bride the people of God. 
all belong to God through the finished work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as he begins to develop his thinking here, we'll just, we'll just touch briefly on some of his thoughts. Notice the preparation of God's people, the bride in 10 through 12. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with, rich, with gifts, the richest of the people. Now the king of Tyre in David's time as well as subsequently Solomon's time recognized the greatness of this line of David and showered gifts upon David and Solomon. But there's someone greater than here being described. And so not only the people of Tyre, but people through all ages now are being typified here. Notice the preparations involved in, one, in 10 through 12. And notice furthermore here, the presentation involved in 13 through 15. She is now being brought down the aisle, positioned under the huppah. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her and with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. C.S. Lewis, Joy Davidson, a marriage. It's one of the great love stories of our times. C.S. Lewis, the professor from Oxford, Joy Davidson, the American, communicate back and forth across the sea, agree to be married. A writer tells us in the early, early in the marriage, Joy's body revealed a secret that had been kept hidden by it. She had cancer. It was irreversible. And the well-ordered life of C.S. Lewis suffered a meltdown. But in the process, this professor realized how deeply he loved his joy. They gave joy the best treatment available. Then he brought her home, committed to her care. The writer tells us it's not surprising that Joy's body responded. Now listen. However, her remission was short-lived. Near her death, Joy told him, You have given me such great joy. And then a little while after, I'm at peace with God through Christ. She died at 1015 on an evening in 1960. Lewis writes, she smiled as she looked up, but she was not looking at me. 
quote, unquote. She had been gripped in her relationship with the bridegroom from above. Are you? What do you do with this? When you put your faith and trust in this one, both human and divine, two natures in one person, that is why he could be the perfect substitute for you and me on the cross. Because only man should pay the penalty. Only God could pay the penalty. Thus, two natures, one person. This has to be understood and then communicated both generationally and internationally, verse 16 and 17. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You, shall, you will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, generationally. But furthermore, therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Isn't that what God promised David? A kingdom that lasts forever. Nations, plural, will praise you forever and ever, internationally. And you say, well, Gary, you mentioned something about how all of this fits together the very end stage of time. You're right. Look very carefully at what appears now on the screen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And now you begin to see how this royal wedding imagery in twofold representation where we find now the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride are all who put faith and trust in Jesus find this coming together and this is forever and ever. Let's stand together. For eternal life is forever and ever. When we've entered into that covenantal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of his people, putting faith and trust in him and him alone for salvation. There's eternal life. So, Father, we see why the evil one attempted to checkmate again and again and again. But Jesus overcomes. And so we look at this messianic plan We see the imagery of this royal wedding. And we praise you, Father, that in your sovereign purposes, you use this to bring honor and glory to your name. 
there's any in these services today, those watching online now or in the days to come, who have yet to put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus, may they realize that the evil one is not able to checkmate. This is meant forever. Asking that he or she put faith and trust in Jesus alone. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.